0: Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and then 21 through 26. Listen now to the word from Acts. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 people. And said, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us throughout that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsavis, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. O God of earth and altar, Winston Churchill once said, words spoken two or three thousand years ago remain with us now, not as mere relics of the past, but with all their pristine, vital force. Lord, may the words of this sermon, acted upon by your spirit, drawing on words from the past, Provide such force today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In the series of why questions I am preaching this fall, I want to move today from high-minded questions such as why worship, why learn, why community, to something a bit closer to the ground. Why organized religion? The question could be rephrased, why does the church have to be like a business, like an institution, like nearly every other entity with which we deal in society? Why organized religion? When I am asked this question from time to time, my normal sort of smart aleck response is to say, well, it beats disorganized religion. (laughs) But I think that the answer goes deeper than that. In Christianity as well as in Judaism, the Judaism out of which we have grown, there is an understanding of reality that is at least two-dimensional. Heaven and earth, the spiritual and the secular, the ideal and the real. Because we are among the historical religions, not simply in the sense that we have a long history, but in the sense that we believe God has revealed who God is within history. There is a certain earth-boundedness to our faith, a certain concern with life here and now, rather than just life in the heavenly realm in the future. Thus our faith is formed and takes shape, normally in a particular religious community, the people of God, the church, the local congregation, and then lives itself out in the larger communities in which we live and move and have our being, relationships and family, community, our work, our nation, our world. In addition, we believe that as Messiah, Jesus Christ was born in the world. He taught and healed in the world. He was put to death by the political processes and forces of the world. He was raised a body in the world. And he will return at the end of all time to make all Things new concerning the world. Because our faith exists within the world, we join with others and become a community, an organization, an institution within the world. We are more than a collection of individuals who seek interaction with God on a personal level. We are a people, a community organized to worship serve, learn, and grow together. We are an institution, what Peter calls a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now the Bible depicts dimensions of this organizational aspect of the people of God at several places along the way. When the people of Israel are first led from slavery to freedom, their leader Moses turns to Jethro, his Gentile, non-Jewish father-in-law, out of an acute need to learn to delegate all the responsibility that he has taken upon himself as leader of the Israelites. Jethro says to him, what you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. Now listen to me. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. But you should also look for able people who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. Set them as officers. Let them bring every important case to you. But decide every minor case for themselves. If you do this, you will be able to endure as their leader. And all of these people will be able to go to their homes in peace. Moses listens to his father in law, and he organizes the people of God for their maximum effectiveness. It is organized religion. Centuries later, when the prophet Jeremiah is warning the people of Israel that the destruction of their capital, Jerusalem, is imminent because of their unfaithfulness, Jeremiah's cousin Hanamel pays him a visit. And tells him that a mutual relative of theirs has passed away and has left them a piece of property on which Jeremiah has the first right of refusal. Jeremiah pauses his prophetic activity. He enters into what becomes the lengthiest business transaction described in the Bible. He announces that even though he has been prophesying doom, the day will come when according to the Lord, houses and field and vineyard shall again be brought into this land, for the Lord will restore our fortunes. So Jeremiah buys the piece of property. He signs the deed. He records it at the courthouse as a sign of hope to come. Again, organization. And in the passage that we just read from the New Testament, the earliest disciples have just passed through the death of Christ. They have heard proclaimed and accepted his resurrection. They have seen him appear to them and to others. They have received his spirit at Pentecost, and they are now ready to embark on their tasks of preaching and teaching and spreading the gospel of good news for all. But first, they must reorganize. They must select a replacement for Judas, their fallen and now deceased disciple. They gather. They meet. They set an agenda for the meeting. They determine the qualifications of all those who might be considered for this 12th disciple position. They ask for nominations from the floor. Two are nominated. Matthias And Joseph called Barsabbas. They pray. The choice isn't apparent to them, so they probably pray some more. The choice still isn't apparent to them, so they draw straws. They really do. Matthias is chosen, and Barsabbas returns to civilian life. Then As an organization, they go out spreading the gospel. The theological answer to why organized religion is this. Because the God we worship has acted in history Because the Christ we follow is incarnate in history. Because our calling as the people of God is to serve God in history. Thus, as the church, as the people of God, we organize ourselves in the forms of organization that history bequeaths us. Within our time and place, within the history in which we live, Institutions and organizations become the place and focal point from which most of the action we do originates and to which most of the action returns. It does beat disorganized religion. But notice that I said the word most. Most... Is not all. Because we are an institution, like all institutions, we face limits. In the case of the church, and especially in the case of a local congregation, we can neither contain nor exhaust the needs, the desires, the yearnings, the searchings the experiences or even the hallmarks of faith of all of our members and visitors and friends. No program of ministry or collection of ministries, no liturgy, no congregation, no sermon or series of sermons, no anthem or hymn, no mission program, no class or learning experience, no set of relationships can contain all of our religious aspirations. Some in the church, some in our church, rightly have their deepest experiences of God outside the church. But the church can still be a center from which we move out and to which we return in our faith. This is what makes the church as an institution so important. We at Westminster, as an institution, have a reasonable chance of being at this location, on this corner, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, as a center of focus for thoughtful, serving, worshipful, Community of Christians or of people who are exploring Christianity, who live in Alexandria or Arlington, in Delray or Beverly Hills, in Fairfax County, in D.C., even in Loudoun County. We have an opportunity and a reasonable expectation that we can be that church for the next 80 years as we have. The 80 years which are drawing to a close. This is one reason that I am never personally shy within the bounds of respecting you about asking you to consider joining Westminster, about asking you to consider deepening your involvement at Westminster, about asking you to support our work financially through the discipline of giving of pledging, of tithing, through tithing your estate or even better, so that we can be the best and strongest institution, we can be welcoming and nurturing people in and to the faith as we best know it. Early in my ministry, it came my turn to preach the 830 service in the church I was serving in West Texas. The early service was held in a chapel that's much like ours. It held about 50 people. And from the chancel, my view was very much like the view uh, this way, except closer. And that was of nicely paneled wooden doors that didn't have windows in them, that that were shut. I noticed after the service one morning, after the ushers had sat down, the door opened slightly, and I saw a woman standing there, and she immediately shut the door. I didn't recognize her. I think it was her first time at the church And my assumption was that she was embarrassed at being late and had turned to go home. But then when the sermon started, I noticed that the door opened slightly. And a hand slid through the door and held it open just a few inches during the entire sermon. Then when the sermon ended, the hand slid back, the door came together, and I never saw the owner of the hand. Maybe she didn't like the sermon. But I have often wondered about that woman. Did the hand belong to someone who had been recently grief-stricken, who'd lost a job, who had a relationship dissolve, who'd lost a spouse, a parent, or maybe a child? Did the hand belong to someone who had searched church after church for one which spoke to her heart and her mind and her will? Did the hand belong to someone for whom a long-sought joy had come to fruition, leading her to recognize as a source of that joy someone beyond herself, drawing her to a worship community so that she could express her gratitude? Had the owner of the hand been injured, hurt by a church in previous years? And was the hand in the door her ever so slight venturing back? Did the hand belong to somebody who was about to attend their first AA meeting or their first AA meeting in years? My friends, the door of the church. It's always open, even if it seems just ever so slightly. It is open always for us to come in and to go out as need be for our faith and our life in the world. But in order to have an open door, we have to have a frame to which it's attached. And the frame is part of an institution, a passage of welcome and of entrance. Amen.